Okay, I want to take you today to India. And I want to share with you some of the miracles that we experience with Hope Channel as we work to launch a channel in the incredible country of India. India is an amazing country. It is, if you know it, it's a relatively tiny in its landmass, but the population is close to 1.4 billion people. It's mind-boggling. There is so many people in India. And anywhere you go in India, there's people, people, people. Well, we believe that God wanted us to remember the continent of India as we developed the network. And so we asked God, what can we do to get started in India? Well, the division president was a personal friend of ours from Canada, and he came to our office sometime early in 2005, and he said, will you help us in India? I'm going to send to you a pastor who's an evangelist, and this pastor is very much into television and technology and stuff like that. Please, could you just give him one camera and a microphone so that he can start preparing programs for Hope Channel India, because someday we're going to have a channel here in India. So we said yes. So we found a small little used camera. We gave him that. We gave him two or three hours of uh, instruction how to use the camera and the equipment, and we sent him back to India. And we didn't hear anything. A year later, he came back to our office and he said, please, could I have a recording deck? We are busy making programs, but we need a way to get the programs off the computer and onto, at that time, we were using DVD cam, DV cam tape. Could you help me with a recorder so we could make the, ta the tapes so that we could send them to you? So we found a small used DV cam recorder and we sent it back to India with him. Again, we didn't hear much of anything, but we started to receive the odd programs, and we began to broadcast them. So then um, I decided in 2008 it was time for me to go over there and see what was happening in India and what it would take to actually get fully started with the channel. So I went off to, uh, to India, and I met with this team. Now, Pastor Johnson, the man who we had connected with, is the man on the far right. And all the rest of these young men were basically like pastoral interns. Here's the story. He told me that at 5 o'clock in the morning, these young men would come to the head church, and they had one small little room they had converted into a television studio, and they would work on production until 8 o'clock in the morning. They would have their prayer time and worship, and then they would work on production, and then the young men would go out to visit in the homes of the people and do their pastoral evangelistic work. So I sat down with them, and I said, why don't you show me uh, some of the programs, and let me take a look. So I'm looking at them and everything, and as I'm looking at them, it really looks like they had used three cameras. And so I talked to them about what they had done, and yes, they had, they had only one camera, but they had positioned it three times in an interview so that they could use the one camera and the one microphone. And I was just really humbled by that. So then I asked them, I said, Pastor, how many programs have you actually made? And well, ma'am, not so many, you know, not as many as we'd like. And I kind of pressed them, I said, no, tell me, how many programs have you made? And finally, they told me that they had prepared 750 programs. 
one camera, one microphone, and you know, their creativity and their perseverance and their will. I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. You know, I, having visited different studios around the world, we have places in other parts of the world that have a beautiful functioning studio with three cameras, and we, we try to get them to bring us 100 programs a year, let alone 750 with only one camera. I couldn't believe it. I was so, so impressed and so touched. Now this Pastor Johnson, his sacrifice and his vision is amazing. He did not have the money to buy a suit, but he knew that if he preached on the TV programs, he would have to have a suit. So he would go to his friends and different people and he would rent a suit so that he could come and preach in a suit for his television program. I was amazed. So anyway, pushing on to the story, we said we have got to help them get a studio. So the division gave us a small piece of property that was in the heart of Chennai, which is, used to be Madras. And uh, we began to collect some money and send some money for building. So I'm standing on the site where the studio is going to be. This is my first visit in November. One year later, you can see the building. We've managed to get it up uh, as high as it is. It's the correct height for a studio inside, but it's looking pretty rough. But we wanted to get it finished, and by faith, they set a goal of the end of February of 2010, which is just three months later, to have that completed and to inaugurate it. So we didn't even have a roof, and that Christmas on Hope Channel, we sat down and did a quick little promo, and we, we did a little advertisement for Give a Brick for India. And so instead of buying gifts for your family, which you, everybody has everything they need, why not take a brick, put a brick for India under the Christmas tree, and send us a donation? And you know we raised enough money to have that roof put on. So when we came in the end of February, um, this is the way it looks. Okay. The studio looks like this. It was looking pretty nice from the outside, but the inside was completely unfinished. There was no electricity in the building. There, were, there was no, nothing for soundproofing on the walls. There was not a decent floor on the floor. We had nothing. And we had this inauguration. Pastor Finley was there, my husband was there, and we had a big day, and it was beautiful, it was wonderful. And Sab Sabbath evening after the inauguration was over, um, Pastor Finley and Mrs. Finley and Brad and everybody left, and they left me there with the task to figure out how to get the studio finished and get us into production there by the end of September. So now it's the first of March, basically. And I'll be honest, I went to my hotel room and I was, like, discouraged. I mean, super discouraged. I'm thinking, Lord, how on earth? We have worked so hard to get it this far, but where is everything going to come? To finish the studio, to put the air conditioning in, to, to do everything that needs to be done to make a, a shell of a building, a functional studio, plus buy the equipment, which is a big price item, and I was so discouraged, and I went to sleep that night, and my, honestly, my heart was down somewhere around my feet, maybe even lower. The next morning on a Sunday, I was supposed to be uh, doing a promotion for Hope Channel India, 
they had brought all the leaders from all the churches in Chennai together, and for 90 minutes I preached my heart out, the story of Hope Channel, the miracles from Hope Channel from around the world, and, you know, with my little bit of faith, I'm saying if it can happen everywhere else in the world, why can't it happen also in India? So I sat down. Now, on the, I sat down on the front row, and then Pastor Johnson got up, and he started talking to the crowd, and he was saying, like, you know, we need to be serious about this. We need to plan for another tithe just for Hope Channel India. Now, you need to understand that at that time, they asked their members to give not only just the regular tithe that they give, but to give an additional 10% just for evangelism. So now, Pastor Johnson was asking for a third tithe. And I'm sitting there on the front row and thinking, these people are poor. How on earth are they going to be giving 30% of their money so that 10% can go to Hope Channel India? And, I mean, the doubt was just rolling through my mind, okay? And Pastor Johnson was kind of working the crowd and telling, you know, the mothers, when you have some rupees and you go to the market, put some aside in your sari and, you know, whatever. And he was kind of like this. And, you know, there was a bit of laughter, but nothing was much happening. And then the back of the door church opened. And there came a young boy, 10 years old, and he came all the way down the front. This is him here, Daniel. I'm sorry the photo is so dark. I took it with my phone sitting in the front row. And he presented to the leaders a pink cupcake that was a piggy bank. And inside the piggy bank, it was filled with rupees that he had saved for Hope Channel India. And my friend, there was an electricity that went through that church that morning. It was like, if God can impress a 10-year-old to save his rupees for three months and bring his offering, what can God do if we all get behind it? But you know what happened? There was something special that happened at that moment in my heart. I went back to my hotel room, and I got down on my knees, and I said, God, forgive me for my discouragement and for my lack of faith. Hope Channel India is your project, and the problems that we have are your problems. And no funding, that is your problem, too. And I said, God, what would you have us do so that we can see this studio become a reality? And in the next few minutes, God laid out this plan that would take us a timeline. And I went over it with Pastor Johnson later that afternoon. Step by step, each month, the things that we would have to accomplish in that studio, approximately what it would cost, step by step. God sent us Jeff Rippendale, the young man from Australia, very, very practical guy. He left his young family. He came for a couple months to help see that that studio got completed. And God gave us exactly every month what we needed. If we needed $10,000 for the air conditioning unit, God gave it to us. If we needed $15,000 for all the soundproofing and sitting in a decent floor, God gave it to us. Every month, God gave us exactly what we needed. I had no idea where it came from. It came. And we came down to the month of August. In the month of August, we had to buy all of the equipment. I'm sorry, the month of July, excuse me. The month of July, we had to buy all of the equipment, and we needed to be able to get that to India so that we could train the young people in India and start the studio, uh, the launch, the production there. We didn't have the money for the equipment. It would cost us $250,000.
for all of the equipment we would need. We went into the general conference session. It was busy, and we were meeting people and you know, telling the story of India along with many other stories of Hope Channel around the world. And the Friday morning, the last Sabbath, something happened that I will never forget for the rest of my life. God had allowed us to meet a couple earlier in the week that we had never met before. And that Friday morning, they came back to us, and they said, we are so impressed with the need in India. We want to help. They didn't know what exactly we needed. And she pulled out of her check, or out of her purse, a check for $250,000. Just on time, the 1st of July, just when we needed it, God gave us all that we had needed. Couldn't believe it. I just started crying. I just burst into tears. It was just like, this is so amazing. God is so into this project. So I'm fast-forwarding now the story. We had young people that were technicians from different parts of the world that were going to come and spend two months in India to train our Indian technicians. We had to get visas for them. We had to work on all of that. We had to gather all this equipment, and we got all of the equipment together, and, and I'll show you a quick picture. Scott Grady was coming with us. He's a technician we've used many times. He was in New York getting all of the equipment packed into suitcases so that we could carry this with us to, to India. And he phones me the day before we're to fly, and he says, Candace, I, I broke my leg. And he's kind of a joker, so I'm like, uh, yeah, right. You know, that's funny, Scott, real funny. <laughs> he says, no, seriously, Candace, I'm in ER right now. But anyway, you know, bless his heart, he just allowed them to splint it, and he came with us, and then he got a cast put on in Chennai. Here we were with all of that equipment, and we had five, we had nine carry-ons with the cameras and other very sensitive equipment. There were four of us that were going to head out, and we were flying into Chennai. Now, in order to get the equipment into the country, it was not going to be easy. We knew that, and we'd been praying and praying and praying. It's not that we weren't willing to pay customs. We were, but we could get, anything could happen. They could impound all the equipment, they could charge you 100% duty, and we didn't have the money for that. So we were really, really praying. God allowed us to get into the airport. All of the equipment was there with us, and we were told we should meet a man in the baggage claim. So I'm watching all of the bags come off, all 19 bags, everything's there. We're putting it on seven trolleys, and we've got Scott in the wheelchair, and there's four of us, and we head toward uh, this man came up to me and he said, he said, um, I'm here to help you. My name is, and everything is right. And he said, um, now I want you to say this and this and this. And if they ask you this, this. And I looked at him and I said, sir, you're asking me to say things that I cannot say. My conscience will not allow me to say this. And I turned to my team and I said, pray that they won't ask me a question I can't answer. And we stepped up to the customs people, and of course, here we are with all this luggage. They have no idea what it's in there. And this other guy starts talking with them, and he's talking away, and the, the discussion is getting more and more heated, and I'm thinking, at any time, they're going to ask for my paperwork, and I had a whole ring. Everything I needed was all right there. And then he turned to me, and he said, Candace, just watch. And I'm thinking, really? So I looked at him, and he said, go. Just go. And so we just started moving along with all of our trolleys and all the baggage and all the custom guys and the, our soldier guys are there with all their big army guns and everything. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. So I'm just walking through. And then I turned back to look at him. He said, keep walking. 
until we kept walking. <laughs> we walked all the way out. All of the equipment came through with us. Nothing was open. Nothing was touched. And the next day, our church leaders went and settled everything with customs. God had answered our prayer. God did so much for us. And you know what? The end of that September, that studio was completed by God's grace, and we began production. And one year later, that team had done 2,200 programs. It was an incredible experience, one I will never, never, never forget. I want to share with you a quotation that's very meaningful to me. The people God is, is leading must venture out upon his word. They must walk forward by faith. Truths have been committed to them, which they must obey. The work of God is aggressive. No one can stand in a neutral position and yet be a soldier in the Lord's army. God has commands for his people, and if they keep in close connection with him, they will hear his voice and will keep in step with their captain. They will go forward in faith in the conflict to fight the battle of the Lord. Amen. Keep walking. I love that one. Now, this quotation of Ellen White primarily applies to advancing God's church through mission, new buildings, etc., whatever. But secondly, it certainly is a principle that we can apply to our individual lives. So what if we don't feel good enough? What if we stop and listen to the doubts and temptations of our personal worth? What happens when we lose the courage or the will to keep on going? A strong catalyst, I believe, for derailing ourselves from achieving our full potential and fully engaging in God's work is found in the value we place upon ourselves. And far more frequently than I would care to admit, I have gotten stuck in the potholes of self-self and um, dodging self-esteem potholes in the road. I have done that. I know what this is like. And I just want to make a disclaimer. This week, you've been so kind to come along with me on this journey. I think you know I'm not a psychologist or a trained counselor or anything like that. For many years, I've shared ministry with my husband. And I've had the privilege of, of traveling to, I don't know, plus minus 70 countries, um, spent 20 plus years in satellite evangelism that preceded Hope Channel and then Hope Channel, the development of the network. And it's been an incredible experience. I've anchored programs, interviewed hundreds of individuals, taught production classes, whatever. It's been a wonderful experience. But this has been a personal journey of self-discovery for me also. And so the things that I've been sharing with you this, this week have been things that have been, been meaningful to my own heart. And, uh, and I hope that you have enjoyed coming along on the trip because um, it's been important for me to study these different things also. One of the um, researchers that I have enjoyed reading from, and her name is Brené Brown, I've referenced her already before, and specifically she's a researcher who studies um, vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and shame. She says this, the thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. And this is in her TED Talk in 2012. She goes on to say, shame drives too big tape. You're never good enough, and if you can talk your way out of that one, then there is, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self, 
guilt is a focus on behavior. And I thought that was very interesting and insightful. So she goes on to say, guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame, rather, is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Now, shame for women is this web of unobtainable, conflicting, competing self-expectations about who we're supposed to be. Are you with me? And it's kind of a straight jacket. Well, for men, it's quite different. For men, shame is not about a bunch of competing and conflicting expectations. Shame is, I will not be perceived as weak. So it's very different for men and women. Now, how many of you, if you did something that was hurtful to me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry? Most of you, I'm sure, would be. Yes, I made a mistake. Now, guilt is, guilt would say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. And there's a big difference in that. Some of you know Arlene Taylor. She's a Seventh-day Adventist, has a PhD, and has studied a lot in the function of the brain. Uh, she says that it's a little bit similar. She uses this terminology. Healthy shame reminds you that you've made a mistake. So healthy shame is like guilt. Reminds you that you've made a mistake because you are human. Unhealthy shame tells you that you are a mistake. So I'm going to just give you a little insight into my DNA. When I was a young teenager, um, I was five foot eight, I think, when I was 12 years old maybe, or 13, and when I was soaking wet, I might have been 100 pounds. So I was very skinny, and to this day, I can still hear the taunts of my classmates, Daddy Long Legs, here comes Spider Legs, you know, there's our bird legs, you know, this kind of stuff. I remember that even to this day, decades, decades, decades later. Well, you know, of course, after I got married, um, I was 105 pounds when I got married, so woohoo, that was good. At least I gained a little bit of weight. <laughs> I was 112 pounds after I had three boys and three pregnancies. And sometimes people in our evangelism would come to Brad and ask if I was anorexic. And I would be like, just crying. It's like, I can eat all I want. I mean, I can eat a whole plate full of apple strudel if I wanted to. And I wouldn't gain any weight. I can't help it. This is the way I am. But it is. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, it's, you know, what I'm trying to say is that negative things that keep going in your, that start when you're young can keep ringing through your head even until you're later. But let me back up a little even further into my DNA. I was an unwanted baby. I never knew my mother. Um, I never had a mother and father take me from the hospital. Um, I went from the hospital to a kind of like a holding home run by the Catholic nurses for the children that were being, the babies that were being put up for adoption. And to this day and for eternity, I will thank God and thank heaven that it was in my interest that God placed me into a loving Seventh-day Adventist home. And I had the privilege of growing up in a home where my parents loved me, and they still loved me. And they gave me the best possible home you can imagine. And I praise God for that. But there are insecurities that I have lived with and struggled with. And even to this day, as a mature, successful adult, I still struggle with things that stem back 
to the insecurities of being an unwanted baby. But I have loved uh, Hope Channel, and I've loved the work of ministry. And God called me into ministry when I was young, and I hope to be able to share that experience with you on another day. But Hope Channel's been everything. We have loved Hope Channel. All the different projects, all the different people around the world. This is with, I'm, I'm with a team of a whole crew of people from technicians from around the world in Papua New Guinea. We helped them in 2015. But during this event, something else was going on. My husband was diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic cancer. He has neuroendocrine tumors. And so we have stepped into a journey that no one ever signs up for. <laughs> and I guess it's been, in a very real way, a reminder of how much the great controversy is so alive in our hearts and lives. And I praise God that, that he has had an incredibly good medical attention at the University of Maryland, and he's doing very well. And we praise God for that. We're so grateful to God for that. But um, I, I resigned my position with Hope Channel last year. And I have to say, I think I miss Hope Channel every single day. <laughs> but it hasn't been easy. And, you know, I'm very grateful for the time I've spent with my husband. But my entire professional identity has been linked to my husband. And it's been a part of the ministry that God has given us through the years. And so there's a whole interesting dynamic that, um, that I'm having to go through. You know, years ago, I had a senior administrator in the church say to me, this is back in the very early days before Hope Channel even started. She said to me, Candace, we hired your husband. We didn't hire you, and frankly, we don't know what to do with you. <laughs> Wow, that is a tough thing to hear when you're an adoptee and you already have issues with security and insecurity. And that was like a big slam to me. And I'm like, but God knows what to do with me. And God knows he has a ministry for me. And God will show me this ministry. And by God's grace, I will be faithful to whatever that ministry is. But I understand this issue of self-worth and I experience it in my own life. But here's the good news. We do not have to be defined by our temptation. I may be tempted to feel insecure or whatever, but we are defined by our choices. I can chart my life by the choices I make. Praise God for that. So why do you think that in the model prayer Jesus gave us, he said, do not lead us into temptation? Why did he include that in that prayer? It's because he knew we would have a lot of temptations going on in our head, right? So that's the good news. We're not defined by our temptations. The bad news is we have an adversary who goes about seeking whom he can destroy. So sometimes the temptations can scream so loudly in our head. And why is that? Because the, the good old devil, I mean the bad old devil, has had 6,000 years of fine-tuning temptations, right? And he knows exactly which button to push for each one of you. He certainly knows it from my own heart. And so he does everything he can to draw us away from our walk with God. He knows those soft spots and where we're the most vulnerable, and he goes after them. And that's just the game as it is. Let's think for just a moment of the first temptation that Satan used on Jesus. What was it? If you are the Son of God. Satan knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Hello. 
He knew it very well. But what did he say? If, why? Satan was attacking the self-identity of Jesus. Let's never forget that. Paul Connett says in the book Hidden Half of the Gospel, Jesus came to the earth not only to die, to offer us salvation from our sins, but also to suffer and be tempted in every way like we are tempted, to offer us freedom from our suffering. Freedom from our suffering, not just our sin, but freedom from our suffering. When we listen to these voices and we're tempted and constantly bombarded with it, that is a degree of suffering, isn't it? And Jesus came to free us of that. And not only that, but he also experienced that suffering. And he frees us, of course, to the patterns of sin. Now, Satan is the father of all lies. He knew very well Jesus' identity. And, he, and yet, that's the first thing he went at. And as children of the king, his subtle attacks frequently challenge us on our identity in the form of belittling our self-worth, for example. So, the battle of the mind, I like to call it the great brain controversy, if you please, these mind games. The role of the subconscious versus the conscious that is constantly a hum in the background of our mind. And I want to look at that now for the next few minutes. Now, many of you have seen pictures of icebergs. Maybe some of you have actually traveled to the Antarctic to see them. But anyway, this is a beautiful big iceberg. And take a look at how big the underneath, what's below the surface, is of the iceberg. What we see on the top is just the tip. That's why there's that phrase, the tip of our iceberg. Well, in our subconscious, and this is something Arlene Taylor says, and I'll actually read it to you. Think of your conscious mind as being the smaller portion of an iceberg that sticks up out of the water and your subconscious mind as a larger portion submerged below. So that subconscious can either be a negative platform or it could be a positive platform, right? And we choose. We can choose. So the question is, which voice are we listening to? Negativity, and this is from Marilyn Price, who is a PhD and she writes in Psychology Today, negativity is like a secondhand smoke. It not only permeates the room, but has dire consequences for those unfortunate enough to be in its path. So I'd like to just qualify for a moment. God never intended us to be hardwired for neg negativity, but because of our fallen human nature, and all of our hereditary factors, and unfortunately practicing negative thought, uh, we are subject to this challenge. And it's not easy. According to neuroscientists, our brains are hardwired for worry, disapproval, danger, illness, fear, and all of that. But it doesn't have to be that way. That may be the natural default. But with God, all things are possible. Now, Ellen White says this, It is not pleasing to God that you should demerit yourself. You should cultivate self-respect by living so that you will be approved by your own conscience and before men and angels. It is your privilege to go to Jesus and be cleansed and to stand before the law without shame or remorse. Praise God for that. There is a psychotherapist, Amy Morfin, she writes, Morin, sorry, she writes a book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and it's quite excellent. But she says here, 
And she wrote uh, um, a, an article for psychologyinfo.com that I'm taking it from. Your inner dialogue will either fuel your success or prevent you from reaching your full potential. So here she's talking about that subconscious noise. And she goes on to say this. The inner critic is us speaking to ourselves. We are not good enough. It is the voice of low self-esteem talking. The inner defender who looks at others and not at ourselves. It is constant chatter that blames others for all our problems. It justifies our actions by looking at others. So there's the inner critic and the inner de uh, defender. And then she goes on to say, there's a third voice. The inner guide is a more positive voice. It is the wise inner chatter that tries to be objective and makes the best of any situation. So here she's basically sharing the same sort of thing, but in more of probably a cognitive behavioral therapy platform. So she goes on to say here that I consistently evaluate my thoughts to make sure that they are productive and on track to help me reach my goals. If they are not doing good things for me, then I try to reframe the negative aspects that I hear. I also try to remember that my thoughts are transient and I will pass through cycles. This helps me to remember that it's not permanent and that things will get better. So as I thought about that, I thought, okay, now what does the Bible say that could help us understand this dynamic and this inner um, warfare in our mind that goes on somewhat subconsciously? So I'm going to call this the Great Brain Controversy. And on the left-hand side, you can see negative dialogue from Satan's influence. Because why? The Bible tells us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We know that. That's his job. And on the other side, there's the positive dialogue from the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you yet another counsel to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the Bible truth says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So here you can see that controversy that's going on in the brain. And what is the basis of that? Satan chose rebellion over love. He knew his choice would ultimately lead to final death and extinction. Therefore, he wanted to malign God's character. He wants to show the universe that it's impossible to keep God's law, and he wanted as many of God's creatures to go with him to eternal damnation. And in sharp contrast to that, Jesus came to show humanity who God was living God's character by providing a perfect example of keeping God's law and loving others. He then offered his life as a sacrifice and a substitute for our final death, providing us with eternal life. And the Bible said he was tempted in Hebrews uh, in, which, in every way in which he has suffered. He, he, was, sorry, he was able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And I praise God for that. But let's go on a little bit more. The inner critic, Satan's influence, says, I'm not good enough. You can never do anything right. Have you ever heard that voice in your head? Boy, I sure have. And you remember from the very beginning when that first lie he handed out to Eve, he knows 
he knows what to say, and he just got this line thing down real well. But what does the Holy Spirit in counteraction tell us? You are complete in him. And the Bible truth, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. So even though the negativity is there, fighting for that, you know, huge big iceberg of faith, we don't have to listen to that. We can tune in to the Holy Spirit and the dialogue that is going on in our mind from the Holy Spirit. Continuing on, the inner defender in our brain under Satan's influence blames anything or anyone else for my problems and takes no personal responsibility. And maybe you've met people like that. They are a victim and everybody else is at fault. Whereas the dialogue from the Holy Spirit says, hey, you need to accept responsibility. Yes, you need to accept your reality, whatever that is. And though I may experience temptation, it is my choice to take responsibility and to live a life of peace and freedom in Jesus. And the Bible truth, Romans 8, 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. You don't have to be defined by our temptation. You know, Martin Luther had a saying that you, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair, right? So temptation will be a part of our lives until Jesus comes and this earth is cleansed of sin. But we don't have to participate in that temptation. We can have the victory that Jesus invites and listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and build a base of positivity under us so that we can be faith-filled, happy Christians. Just moving on, here's another one. The negative dialogue from Satan's influence looks at God's law and fills me up with shame. I am a mistake and leaves me with a sense of being unacceptable. There's unrest and unhappiness. On the other side, there's conviction. When I violate God's law, the Holy Spirit convicts me. Guilt is healthy. When I have done wrong and used by God to bring me back to Him. And the Bible truth, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin. Righteousness and judgment. That's the Bible truth. Going on, negative dialogue from Satan. Focus on I. Poor me, life isn't fair. Jealousy began in heaven with Lucifer saying, I, I, I will be like the Most High. I want to be on, on the plans for this new world that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are developing. And he was unhappy. He was jealous. Whereas the dialogue from the Holy Spirit focuses on my completeness in Jesus, fills me with gratitude, praise, and service. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. Um, and the Bible truth, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago in Isaiah. And then there's this never good enough, who do you think you are anyway? Have you ever had that voice? Well, I have. And yet the beauty is that God enables those whom he calls. I may not have the experience or training, but God provides wisdom and gives strength for tasks given to me and opportunities to learn. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that tomorrow I can believe that God wants me to be a medical doctor like my son, or like two of my sons, and that I'm, you know, going to be enabled to be a medical doctor and that you would be willing for me to be a surgeon like my youngest son and cut you open. No, because I haven't had the training for that. 
But if God asks me to get up like he's asked me this week and share my testimonies and my experiences and my journey with you, he will be faithful enough and give me the strength and the wisdom to do what he calls me to do. Amen? And I praise God for that. The one who calls you, First Thessalonians, is faithful and he will do it. And finally, impossible. Can't do it or it can't happen. And the Holy Spirit said, according to God's will, the sky is the limit. I can dream big. I can grow. I can develop the talents and spiritual gifts God has entrusted to me. Because with God, all things are possible. We may only have one talent, but God expects us to use it and to grow it and to share it for his glory. So that's this great brain controversy that keeps going on. Oh, hey, here's one more. You sinner, you've done so much wrong, and you are so bad, God will never accept you. And God says, the Holy Spirit says, I'm a sinner. Yes, you're a sinner, but you're saved by grace. You're complete in Jesus, and Jesus sees infinite possibilities in you. The Bible truth is, but because of his great love for us, it is by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God. And here it comes back down to, in this great brain controversy, it comes down to the importance of choice. And C.S. Lewis says this, because free will, with his choice, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. So this is so exciting to me because in our world today, there's a line of psychology and even theology that says we're all predestined or determined to live out our lives in a certain way. Genetically, I'm engineered. Okay, I'm, you know, an unwanted baby. It determines where I'm going. God has a predestinated plan. Calvinism. It's in the genes. We all live out a certain way. The Bible teaches, however, God is love. There can be no love without free choice. And praise God who gives us that free choice. And throughout the Bible, there are numerous examples of choice and the role that it plays. So fundamentally, to continue walking in the Christian life is to have the firm belief that choices determine destiny. And any time, my choice may not feel good, but in the long run, that choice can change our character. Ellen White says this, Jesus loves you and he has given me a message for you. His great heart of infinite tenderness yearns over you, and you may recover yourself from the snare of the enemy. You may reign, uh, regain your self-respect. You may stand where you regard yourself not as a failure, but as a conqueror through the uplifting influence of the Spirit of God. Take hold of the hand of Christ and do not let it go. And moving on, the same quotation is not pleasing to God, but you should demerit yourself. You should cultivate self-respect by living to which you will be approved by your own conscience before men and angels. It is your privilege to go to Jesus and be cleansed and to stand before the law without shame or remorse or guilt. Praise God. While we think, should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, the word of God does not condemn a proper self-respect. As sons and daughters of God, we should have a conscious dignity of our character in which pride and self-importance have grown part. This is not a matter of being proud and everything and arrogant. Not at all. 
but it's a matter of standing in the firm belief of knowing who I am in Jesus Christ. And then very quickly, um, there are seven steps to silencing this negative voice that um, Amy Morin gives us. So she talks about, um, and she has herself has a very, very interesting story. I don't have time to share it, but it's amazing. Number one, develop an awareness of your thoughts. How many times are things just going around your head and you're not even really cognizant of what is going on? So stop and think about what you're hearing. What are those narrations that you're listening to uh, subliminally? And listen to them and be cognizant of it. Stop ruminating. Now, I told you yesterday I grew up on the farm and us kids used to go cuddle up beside our Jersey cow on the, on the grass and put our hand underneath her throat so that we could feel the lumps of grass going up and down as she brought them up out of one of her four stomachs and feed them. You know, sometimes we just tend to get on to something and we just keep going over and over and over and over and over. And what happens? That base underneath us just keeps getting built bigger and bigger self-consciously. Uh, I mean, unconsciously. Let's stop those critical thoughts before they even start spiraling out of control. Now, what advice would you give a friend? Sometimes when the negativity is just ringing in your head and you stop and you realize it, ask yourself, would, if your best friend came to you and talked to you about feeling the same way, would you be telling your best friend what your subconscious is telling you? No, I don't think so. So stop and think about that. And treat others the way you would want your, I mean, treat yourself as you would treat others. Now examine the evidence. We need to ex learn to recognize when our critical thoughts are exaggeratedly negative. Sometimes we just need to step back and take a bigger picture. <laughs> Replace overly critical thoughts with more accurate statements. <laughs> you know, sometimes we look in the mirror and we see something and it's like totally wrong. So step back and just replace that. Each time you find yourself thinking an exaggeratedly negative thought, respond with a more accurate statement. Yes, a statement. Yes, sweetie, hello, you are not alive. Consider how bad it would be if your thoughts were true. Ooh, I know, exactly. So, yeah, the worst case scenario really isn't as bad as you might imagine. So just stop thinking about how bad it could be. Balance acceptance with self-improvement. There's a big difference between telling yourself that you're not good enough and reminding yourself that you can work to become better. So there's a big difference there. We need to grow in, in Jesus Christ, but we don't have to just sit there and accept to be the way we are, especially when we're tempted to think unhappy thoughts. Um, I don't know if you heard in... By the way, exactly what time it is. I think my clock is on 2.51. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, there was a really interesting experience. I don't know if you picked it up. It was in the, on the news here some months ago about somebody who had picked up a costume jewelry, a piece of costume jewelry out of, uh, out of a trunk uh, of sales, whatever, in England. And um, they had it in their home for many, many years. And one day, they actually had it evaluated, and they came to find out it was a 26 point. 27 carat cushion shaped white diamond and it sold it sold just recently for something like $800,000 I thought I had the exact amount here and I don't see it $800,000 they picked it up for 10 pounds in England and it, it was worth so much more 
so when I think about that, I cannot help but think about how do we think about ourselves and the value we place ourselves in as we look toward Jesus Christ. And my husband has said to me before, understanding our true value is the ultimate antidote for shame. Praise God, we are worth what heaven pays for us. Ellen White says, It should not be difficult to remember that the Lord desires you to lay your troubles and perplexities at his feet and leave them there. Go to him saying, Lord, my burdens are too heavy for me to carry. Wilt thou bear them for me? And he will answer, I will take them. With everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you. I will take your sin and I will give you peace. Banish no longer your self-respect, for I have bought you with the price of my own blood. You are mine. You'll weaken, but I will strengthen. Your remorseless sin I will remove. Oh, thank God. We are not a mistake. God loves us, and he values us so much. The story is told of Amy Carmichael. She was a, uh, an Irish lady that went to India in the late 1800s. And she lived for 55 years. She never went back to Ireland, uh, never had a furlough. She lived there with the people and orphanage and whatnot. She loved the children. She died there. And very near the end of her life, when she could barely write, she wrote this, Precious child, if you are so dear to me, what begin find I know? And that's so touching. And I want to ask you the question, how would what price tag would you pay to have God himself leave the splendors of heaven, come here as a tiny baby and a, to a mother that's unwell, to grow up and all of the things that Jesus experienced through his ministry, through his life, everything that happened to him, where eventually he's put out on a garbage heap and hung between two criminals on a cross to die. How much would you, you have to pay to have someone do all of that for you? There's no price tag that can be put on that. We are so valuable to God. We are not junk. We are God's precious property. He pays his life for us. So, you know, in the great brain controversy, when the voices are fighting in my mind, I must choose to listen either to the influence of the devil or the good influence of the promptings of the Holy Spirit. By God's gift of grace and strength, I will keep walking. I will press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And we can humbly hold our heads high and be confident that we have value, huge value in the sight of heaven. Jesus loves you. He left all the splendor of heaven and risked everything just for you. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10, do not throw away your confidence. What's it like to get discouraged? All of us get discouraged. I was discouraged. I was rebuked by that 10-year-old little boy, Daniel, in India. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. So don't shrink back. And he goes on, uh, Paul goes on just a couple verses later, but if my righteous one will, leave, will live, I'm sorry, that's a misspell, live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. God doesn't want us to be discouraged, but we are not one of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we have those who believe and are saved. We need to keep walking, just keep walking. 
irrespective of how challenging the road may be, and even when we don't even see a road to travel on, we need to keep walking. Courageously, we need to live a life of faith. We need to walk each and every day with Jesus, our captain, our senior business partner, the Holy Spirit. We need to move forward on our knees. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Praise God for that. I want to share with you a video that comes from um, Sao Tome. This, this is a tiny little island um, off of the coast of Africa. And you will see a lady here who keeps walking in a way that none of us have ever had to confront. The miracles happening in Southern African Indian Ocean Division will not be complete without the moving testimony of Sister Vitalina, who has proved to the world that disability does not mean inability. My name is Vitalina. I was born here in this beautiful island of Sao Tome and Principe. I was not born by grace. I developed pregnancy complications and I was given a choice to choose between my legs and my life. So I chose to save my baby, and my legs were amputated because of the disease that had affected my legs. I'm the only Adventist member in my family, and God has been very merciful to me. I look after myself, and people feel sorry for me, but I'm happy the way I am because I'm serving the Lord in a special way. I do Bible studies with the community around me, and the response is amazing. So far, through God's grace, 17 souls have been baptized as a result of my work with the small group Bible studies that I conduct around this community. I am so touched when I see new souls accepting Christ as their personal Savior. During the mornings, I work very hard in the field to feed the family. I'm always accompanied by my dog. Recently, I was chosen by the government as one of the good farmers, and I was sent to Cape Verde to rub shoulders with the other farmers. And this is a good news to see that the government and the community recognize my efforts. Sometimes, I don't even feel like I'm disabled because I can do a lot of things that even able-bodied people cannot do. God can use anyone, and I'm happy he's using me as his vessel. 
keep walking. We need to be very real. There's a great brain controversy in the minds of these parents. We battle shame, guilt, self-worth, and value. Don't give up. Never give up. Through the minefields of temptations, disappointments, pain, and discouragement, just keep Let's stand together, please. Oh, Lord Jesus, we give you glory and honor and praise for the wonderful and amazing Savior you have that you love us so much, that you see so much value in us, and that you gave so much to have us united to live with you for eternity. May we never be sidetracked by the distractions of the evil one. May we forever keep our eyes focused on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And may we just keep walking until you come to take us back to heaven and to eternal life and our eternal home that you've prepared for us. I pray in Jesus' holy name.